Welcome to A Closer Look, a podcast that explores the ways in which the world we live in and how we engage with it can impact our health, happiness, and well-being. Now, here's your host, Dr. Robin Pickering, Professor of Health Sciences at Whitworth University. Okay, well, welcome to A Closer Look. I am Robin Pickering, your host, and I am just honored today to welcome our special guest and to welcome you all. Today we have joining us Dr. Brian Luke Seward, who is regarded as one of the most foremost experts in the field of stress management. And he is a pioneer in the field of mind-body-spirit healing and corporate health promotion. The wisdom of Brian Luke Seward can be found quoted in PBS specials, the Chicago Tribune, the Huffington Post, college graduation speeches, medical seminars, boardroom meetings, church sermons, keynote addresses all over the world, and in my classes, I will also add that as well. He has authored more than 12 books, including the, pla- the classic bestsellers, Stand Like Mountain, Flow Like Water, which is a great book, um, The Art of Calm and Stressed is Desserts, Spelled Backward, and the leading college textbook, Managing Stress, which I used when I used to teach that class. I used for years and years and loved Um, Dr. Seward's mission, as expressed through his legacy of acclaimed books, documentary films, and public appearances, is to make this world a world in which to live by having each of us reach our highest potential. Um, His corporate clients include Hewlett-Packard, Royal Caribbean, Wells Fargo, Transamerica, Procter & Gamble, ConocoPhillips, Motorola, Quaker Oats, John Deere, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he is now a faculty member of the Graduate Institute, um, sorry, of Colorado Consortium for Public Health. Um, Dr. Seward is the executive director of the Paramount Wellness Institute in Boulder, Colorado. And his bio goes on and on and on. And I just want to say welcome to you Luke, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. I really appreciate it. So I have to gush on you a little bit. I am so pleased. And I I hadn't mentioned to you that this is actually our last episode, first season. And I am just so tickled to have you join us. When I last saw you, I actually was probably at the lowest of the low point in my life. You don't know any of this, but I was um, days out of calling off a wedding, I was probably at the lowest point that I recall being was having to move out of my house, all of these things. And I attended one of your stress management workshops in Boulder, Colorado. It was beautiful. That was the first time I'd actually been to that part of Colorado. Um, I remember arriving And normally when you go to these multi-day workshops, there's all these different speakers and flash. And I remember arriving and there was one room, chairs in a circle, 
and then one speaker, which was you. And I thought, huh, this is different. I had never sat on the floor in a workshop before. And I am not kidding you that it was life changing. I remember needing to go to the bathroom the whole time that (laughs) first day, but I didn't want to miss one minute of what you were saying. And we did art therapy and music therapy and humor therapy and all these things. And it was so inspirational to me that I, I remember buying your book, proposing a class at the university that I was teaching at at the time, and then teaching that for years, really based on your workshop. So I want to say on a personal level, Thank you. And also thank you for joining us. And I didn't want to hog all of that healing all to myself. And you were willing to come here and share. So thank you again on a personal level and on a professional level. And I would love if you could just kind of share your gift and um, what brought you to this space of talking about stress management. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks. It's a real honor to be here. Um, you know, I think um, when I um, went out for the high school swim team, I was inspired by Mark Spitz. Uh, and I, I swam in, in a college, and I've been swimming ever since, actually. But um, I think I was really intrigued initially by um, athletics at the highest level, the, the mm-hmm. gold level Olympic uh, arena and stuff. And it's and I ended up working with the Olympics, um, as fate would have it, uh, back in 1984, 84 to 88 with the Olympic biathlon team. Oh, wow. It was it was pretty amazing. And, you know, the, the biathlon sport is what I call a James Bond sport. It, it's um, uh, cross-country skiing and, and rifle uh, marksmanship shooting. Uh, which comes from an old hunting thing out in Norway, you know, 2000 years ago. But um, but at some level, all the athletes were equally gifted physically. What separated them from uh, the gold medals versus the the bronze medals or, or the last place was really um, what was up with their head, their, you know, their, mm-hmm. their, their mental attitude. And so, um, you know, I taken some stress management classes when I was in college back in the 70s, but it was very much symptomatic relief it was just like one technique they taught and 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 i was teaching these guys all kinds of things from you know meditation which we called mental training to uh to team dynamics and stuff but i think if i were to go back further you know i don't often talk about this but um but um i can share this with you guys um i was raised by two abusive alcoholic parents and um it turns out that both my parents died of alcoholism you know decades ago i had two sisters the older one has since died from alcoholism and my younger one is a recovering alcoholic mm-hmm. i decided never to drink but i think that uh, that i was thrown into the uh, the fire at a very early age in terms of um, what we now would call as trauma uh and i i um I'm not looking for sympathy because I, I, uh, I, that's not what I'm saying this for, but, but I think that, um, the joke I say is this, that I, uh, a Freudian analysis would say that, um, since I couldn't save my parents, I decided to save the world, but I like the Jungian take that I chose my parents to do the work that I'm doing now. Mm. <laughs> Isn't that, it, it's, it's amazing how much can come from, from grief if we choose to frame it that way. Yeah. Um, uh, wow. That's, that's amazing. So when you worked with these athletes, what kind of things, when you're talking about mental training or meditation, what does that look like? Oops. Kind of like about 30, 40 years ago. Um, 
uh, you know, back then to show you how far we've come, if you said the word echinacea, the response was gesundheit. Now <laughs> 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 we've come a long way. So I had to be very careful about this, uh, what I'm going to call as a mind, body, spirit approach. Uh, that, you know, I had had exposure to, um, gosh, well before I ever met these guys, but I wanted to introduce the idea that that um, training, performance, health, uh, well-being wasn't just physical. It wasn't just like what I call broccoli and aerobics or today, kale and CrossFit. <laughs> you know, it was a dynamic interaction of mind, body, spirit. And when you get all those aligned together, then we can really show some amazing performance uh, attributes, whether it's at the Olympics or whether it's um, uh, in a crisis. Uh, and Lord knows we've got lots of crises going on today. Really, what it just means, how can we reach our highest potential? And so um, so in working with the athletes, I can recall um, teaching them all kinds of techniques for relaxation. But we also talked about trying to um, to work with uh, you know, their, their mental fortitude as well. And I'll never forget this one guy on the team uh, was just the nicest guy. And it was kind of ironic to see him hold a rifle because it looked very incongruous. <laughs> and uh, and then one night I'm walking down the, the athletic uh, dormitory and, uh, and I see this guy with a night guard in his mouth. And I thought, oh my God, that makes so much sense. He had TMJ, mm-hmm. yet he was um, trying to, you know, use the night guard, which I fully support, but that's only going to work with the symptoms. It's not working with the cause. And then when I saw that, I thought, okay, now I need to, address some anger issues because so much of TMJ deals with um, unresolved anger. And, uh, and <laughs> I don't know how he is now, although I do know that at some point he got rid of the mouth guard and, and no longer needed it. So we made some inroads there. Oh, I, I really relate to that. I struggled for, for a long time with TMJ and same thing was just to tried everything, tried everything, went to the dentist fitted for a night guard. And they said, Oh, you're grinding your teeth. You got TMJ. It would go through periods of time where I literally couldn't even talk because it was just so horrible. And then I turned in my doctoral dissertation and it just went away. (laughs) I thought, Oh, okay. It's magic. It's actually stress that's doing this awful thing to me. And, um, yeah, so that was my cure. Um, one of the things that I would love to get your take on. So I remember going to grad school and learning about this idea that thoughts become things in the body mm-hmm. and that are the way in which we think about things, the way in which we perceive stressors actually can manifest physically in the body as, as things and I remember thinking, because I think a lot of times, like you said, people think, oh, this is so kind of out there, this concept of stress management and meditation. But this idea that physiologically, the way that we respond to stress changes the body. Could you talk a little bit about that? What is what does our manifestation of stress look like physically? Yeah, great question. We could spend hours on this, but um, to kind of put it into a nutshell, um, I, I've been using the phrase for quite some time that goes like this. The body becomes a battlefield for the war games of the mind. Mm-hmm. And, and what we mean by that is if we have unresolved issues of anger and fear, anger being the fight response, fear being the flight response, um, which by the way, anger and fear are not bad emotions. They're survival emotions. As a consequence, you know, we need them to survive. But they're only supposed to last um, moments enough to get out of harm's way and then, you know, let, forget about it, move on. But we have one little problem, and the problem is the ego. And the ego says, hmm. if some is good, more is better, let's hang on to this. And so we, you know, we, um, we 
fret over uh, things which we have no control over. We um, we stew in our mind episodes from the past where we um, have unresolved issues of frustration, anger, and such. And ultimately, we see this has a huge effect on the immune system. And so, for example, a uh, little physiology lesson here. I'll just make it real brief because it can be pretty intense. But um, you have a stress hormone, or we all have a stress hormone called cortisol. And cortisol does a number of things in the body to prepare us for fight or flight. Like it increases heart rate, increases blood pressure, increases uh, glucose and blood for energy. Also increases free fatty acids for energy in case you got to go run longer than you know a few mm. minutes. All these things basically get us to, to survive. Um, and the, the researchers have no idea why the next thing happens, but they say that at some point, if you continue on with this secretion of cortisol, cortisol destroys white blood cells. So we see a direct link between stress and the immune system, which is problematic for sure. Um, and the big thing we say basically about stress is that, um, you know, if you lose your car keys, but you find them 10 minutes later, you know, yeah, that's stressful, but it's not like the world's coming to an end. But if we have chronic stress that goes on for days, weeks, months, years, even decades, um, and some examples might be things like, um, you know, the boss from hell, the ex-spouse from hell, um, the traffic from hell. By the way, I always say, you know how, how popular <laughs> hell become these days. Yeah, yeah um, it's very populated. It, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really. But if we have these um, these chronic stressors, ultimately it's going to affect on chronic disease. Um, with uh, the cortisol, the immune system. It's a lot more complicated than this, but that's a good uh, starting point right now. Another thing we've come to learn in the past, maybe like 10, 20 years, is that uh, cortisol and another, a number of other stress hormones cause inflammation in the body. And the inflammation uh, then is going to cause all kinds of, of um, uh, problems too, in terms of uh, uh, chronic health issues and such. So there's a number of, of ways in which the body becomes a battlefield for the war games, the mind. But I like to start with cortisol because everyone, I think, has heard of that one, and and they all know about the immune system. And you know, I got to tell you, um, I don't know why I'm smiling when I say this, but there's three <laughs> things that suppress the immune system: stress, a bad diet, and poor sleep. Mm -hmm. And Robin, I got to tell you, that's not like everybody I know right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Absolutely. so stress is rampant. Um, but we now know, you know, I, I liked your expression of, of how does um, a, a negative thought that persists turn into a physical problem. Um, so back about 1981, I was introduced to the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's a very famous psychologist, and her work was on death and dying. Uh, and she wrote a book about that, actually. Right. But when I heard her speak at this medical conference, she didn't speak about death and dying. She talked about this concept called holistic wellness. And she drew a big circle on a flip chart and divided it north and south, east and west. And said there are four quadrants to be human we need to pay attention to, mind, body, spirit, and emotions. And she said a lot of the Western culture puts all our attention on the, the bottom right-hand corner of physical well-being. And you can, she said, basically, this is a safe ground to stand on because you can measure height, weight, blood pressure, cholesterol. We can measure the DNA right now. But she said, how do you measure mental well-being? How do you measure emotional well-being? And, and how do you measure spiritual well-being? She said, if you only take a look at one quadrant of this circle and put all your attention there, we're doing a half-baked job in terms of health and well-being. And just to show you the connection between these quadrants, and I learned this several years ago, I used to work in cardiology and uh, things have changed now with cell phones, but think back in the 80s and stuff. And I think it may still be true today that um, the number one time of the week that we see the most heart attacks is Monday morning. 
<laughs> the joke is humans can program themselves for a heart attack. <laughs> and when they begin oh, to interview these people and they ask them, you know, what's going on? The ones who survived, I might add, um, they all said they didn't like their job. <laughs> That's why Monday morning was a problem. But then they would pursue this further. They, they, these people said, well, I feel like my life has no purpose. Now, if you were to talk to shamans, the sages, the wisdom keepers and healers and ask them, what is this topic of human spirituality all about? You're going to hear them say three things, relationships, values, and a meaningful purpose in life. So to connect some dots here, if there's a lack of purpose in your life, which is a very spiritual construct, it can have a physical implication for your health and well-being. In this case here, you know, heart attacks and heart disease and such. So um, it's in academia, which we both um, have spent a fair part of our lives in, you know, we, we, we toss out definitions, we toss out constructs, we divide and, and uh, conquer because that's an easy way to begin to understand certain aspects. But what we don't do in academia, at least a lot of us don't do, is we don't put things back together again. And, and so what Kubler Ross was describing that day was, let's look at the big picture. And because by denying the big picture, then we're doing an injustice to what we call health and well-being and healthcare as well. One of the things that I, I got so many things from your textbook, your managing stress textbook that I used in my class for so long. But part of um, what you talked about in the book was some of the work from Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. And in that, I'm reminded, listening to you talk, I'm reminded that he describes this subjective nature of perceiving stressful life events. And this mm -hmm. idea that if, if you said this, this activation of anger, this activation of fear that manifests in the body physiologically, um, it's really subjective because you have, you know, for those who haven't read it, he describes his experience in the concentration camp in um, World War II. And he, he often references the people that ended up surviving and those who didn't and kind of watching what happened to people in their final days mentally. And this idea that we each determine what causes this response in our body by, you know, we probably all know somebody that everything stresses them out. Everything almost pushes them over the edge. They're, they're jumpy, they're edgy. And then others that are able to have, even in the case of identical experiences, a calm response to it. Is it because of what you're talking about, this sense of purpose, or is there there's something else that allows some people to just roll with it and others to be so prone to this constant hormonal response to just life? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a million-dollar question. Um, <laughs> it varies from person to person, but what we now know is that a lot of people um, at a young age model their um, stress behavior based on their parents. And so oh, the parents man. are stressed, they're going to pass this on to their kids. And, and it takes um, a lot of unlearning to, uh, to you know, reprogram yourself. You know, I came across this great quote. It says, you know, as a child, you are not responsible for the programming you received mm -hmm. in your formative years. But as an adult, you are responsible for the upgrades. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, I think that, um, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I definitely um, saw my parents not cope very well with their stressors. Uh, and 
um, I thought to myself, I'm, I'm not doing this. I made a, a conscious decision not to ever drink, but there were other behaviors too that I had to, you know, reprogram, if you will. And so I think that all of us, um, uh, you know, we come into this world, you know, with this nature or nurture thing going on. Um, some people I think may be more, um, prone and again, personality is very complex. I mean, we still don't have it down very well. Um, some people may seem like they come into the, into the, the, the world here with, uh, more gifts to handle stress than, better than others. But we now know that everyone's capable of improving their resiliency levels. In fact, I got to tell you something, Robin, I took a workshop two weeks ago in resiliency because resiliency is a new buzzword for stress management. And, and um, I, I thought, honestly, what I can learn, I know I'm always trying to learn stuff and I teach this as well. Every single speaker, and there were like, I think like 20 speakers in the course of, of um, five days, every speaker talked about trauma, saying the new definition for resiliency isn't how well you endure or how well you cope. It was how you heal from trauma. So tell me, other million dollar question. So, and and I'm I'm finding the same thing that talking about ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences, talking about trauma, healing from trauma, and that that's really seems to be what is described right now as not the magic ticket, but we can our attachment styles driven from our our traumas, our our ability to cope with life's stressors has a lot to do with our traumas. So how do we move forward? Let's say that we are somebody that is struggling with resiliency, or we are feeling overwhelmed, or we're getting TMJ, or we're, we're having all of these negative things. And I know that a lot of people have turned to drinking more or turned to other things, which it sounds like you are saying maybe isn't the best approach. What... Yeah. What do you recommend for folks who are trying to get better? What are some coping strategies? How do we move forward? Yeah, great question. Uh, this could also take a few hours too, but <laughs> put it into a soundbite. Um, first, let's let's talk about um, trauma. And I think that um, I've learned in this this workshop and actually before that that there's several different types of trauma. Uh, there's acute, where you know you have like one horrific event in your life, but it, it seems like a black cloud over your head. Then you have um, uh, chronic trauma where you have, let's say like someone who lives with alcoholic parents and you don't know what to expect, you know, for 18 years of your life when you come home from school type thing, right. uh, that's cumulative. Then there's also, um, what they call is collective trauma where you have co combinations of these. And they also talk about a thing called community trauma, which I think is what the experts are now saying. We all have been through with COVID, like the whole planet went through a traumatic experience and, you know, whether it was the loss of, of, um, of, um, your favorite restaurant or whether it was the have to wear a face mask or whether it was um you know the loss of of um, your colleagues not seeing them because you couldn't go to work for four or five months um there was a huge amount of loss and when you think of trauma think of, of significant uh, loss and the biggest one is freedom you know a lot of us lost our freedom to do things we wanted to although I gotta tell you, we didn't have as bad here as we had in other countries. I know people in Ireland and Italy, if they went a mile outside where they lived, they got fined a thousand dollars. Right. I've heard some international stories too that were pretty oh pretty extreme compared to what we experienced here. Yeah, yeah. So what I talk about in terms of trauma, and I, I gotta tell you, I'm not an expert in this, so um, I will defer to the experts, but one thing I picked up was that the first step in trauma is is trauma recovery is learning to have healthy grieving. And in other words, we can't talk about 
um, effective coping skills and effective relaxation techniques or anything like that before we deal with the problem at hand, which means we've got to acknowledge that we've had a loss. We've got to go through a healthy grieving process. And, and there's a lot of steps to that, which probably don't have the time for right now. But, um, but one thing that um, experts suggest is you know, get some counseling. This is not something you can do on your own very easily. But the problem with this, Robin, is that we don't have enough counselors out there for all of the people who need it. I mean, it's like, oh my God. So um, yeah. so I would say um, to anyone listening, if this sounds like you can relate to this, first of all, I'm going to put us in a categorical uh, statement here. We've all experienced trauma. <laughs> uh, and so, but if it's something that that really feels, you feel like you need to address and, and it's a good idea to do that, um, maybe pick up a couple of books about grieving or a couple of um, uh, uh, informa some information, whether it's some YouTube uh, ideas or, or things on, on grieving. And actually, I should tell you that there's, healthy grieving and there's unhealthy grieving. Um, and a lot of people who use coping techniques that I call are ineffective would fall in that category of unhealthy grieving. Things like um, uh, excessive drinking, which can lead to alcohol problems, um, drug use, uh, violence, um, or just sometimes ignoring the whole problem that, you know, hey, I don't have a problem, I'm fine type thing. Uh, that's, that's called denial, that's a defense mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, but what I see in terms of coping techniques that are effective are they, they do two things. One is they shed light on the problem because a lot of times people aren't even aware they have um, what the real issue is. And secondly, it steers you in the direction of resolution. And, and that's so very, very important is to come to a sense of, of resolution or inner peace. Um, sometimes we call this homeostasis or, or uh, balance. Um, but there are lots, there's thousands of ways to cope with stress effectively. Um, and and that's, those are the ones I, I promote or advocate so it sounds like um, as it always seems to come back to people who are wanting to deal with life stress in immediate and quick ways, like going for a run or exercising might be missing the bigger picture, like finding purpose, dealing with traumas, um, bigger things that it sounds like can make longer, more sustainable um, changes in, in terms of our ability to cope with stress. Is that fair? Very fair. Yeah. You know, and I just got, I just spoke at this conference, a health motion conference, um, a couple of uh, days ago down in Colorado Springs, you know, I talked about this very topic and I said to a bunch of health educators and wellness practitioners and people who run, um, benefits like HR and, and uh, EAP and stuff. And I said, you know, don't get me wrong. All these things that we're doing are important. But to somebody who's going through a traumatic experience and trying to just uh, keep their head above water, when we talk about yoga or, or mindfulness meditation, to them, that's rainbow, rainbows and unicorns because they're in survival mode. That to them is like dessert. They, they need something more substantial initially. Um, however, I will tell you that those, some of those things are also very grounding. So it's not like we want to just throw them out. They're important, but I think we need to explain why we're, we're suggesting that they do these things. It's mm -hmm. not so you can become more limber and be a pritzel for, for yoga therapy or that um, you can um, sit in traffic and not be bothered by someone honking their horn for mindfulness. Um, those things are ways to kind of keep you grounded so you can begin to really focus on those things which need attention. In this case here, how to, to grieve healthily with the losses that we've had um, so that we, we can get to a place of our higher potential. You are talking about healthy coping 
And I'm reminded of when I went to that workshop that I'm describing, you had us do this activity, which I had never done art therapy before. So I'd certainly done art as an activity. But I remember in this activity, you had us draw ourselves or paint. Maybe it was paint. I forget. No, I think it was drawing, drawing ourselves with markers or something. And you you showed these very powerful examples and these meaningful, this meaningful symbolism that people had used in these things. And we had a totally silent room and we were to each draw ourselves And when you talk about discovering purpose and kind of digging a little bit deeper, I can't tell you how impactful that was in a way of just kind of accessing this deeper level, like, hey, what am I experiencing right now? Why do I feel kind of so disjointed from myself? And it sounds like that's part of what you're talking about, this idea that we we have to go to a deeper level in terms of looking at what the the bigger issues with purpose, or even, as you mentioned, a disconnect between finding purpose in our jobs and kind of what we're called to do. Man, never the easy way out, huh? (laughs) No, no. I think that, you know, our first response is to take the easy way out, but that doesn't get very far. It's like a dead end. Absolutely. I, if you were talking to somebody and I know that you've recommended reading books about grief, but you have also mentioned a few other things that can sometimes get in the way. What what else would you recommend for folks to do if they're struggling with dealing with stress, if they're struggling with sleeping because of it? Yeah, well, okay, that's... That's another topic that could take five hours, but, but, uh, but, uh, let's start with this. Okay. First of all, um, we live in a, uh, culture of distractions. We are constantly being bombarded with sensory stimuli that steals our attention away from, I'm going to say more important things. And I, I love technology. We could not do this, um, this interview without technology, but, um, technology has been greatly overused. I think to the point we now have terms for it, it's called screen addictions. And so um, the real big thing we talk about in terms of, of um, healthy uh, lifestyles and even with um, dealing with, with trauma is to have some healthy uh, boundaries. And so um, you'll see the dots. I'm going to connect them to sleep in a second. But um, what we now know is that we were never meant to sit in front of a computer screen for eight hours at a time, yet we all seem to have some propensity to do that, especially at, at nighttime. You think to yourself... I'm just going to watch one episode of Ted Lasso and you get sucked into binge watching <laughs> for like five hours or Game of Thrones or, you know, you pick the TV show, whatever the thing is. Um, so that's not how we were initially designed to, to be is to, you know, sit like that and become absorbed. And they have a new name for what people do when they go through social media. It's called doom scrolling. And and so that right there kind of shows you that we have this propensity to look for, for things that are going to uh, continually keep us in fight or flight. We now know through research that people who do um, doom scrolling basically are um, reenacting a traumatic behavior of hypervigilance, always on the lookout for something, you know, what what dangers are out there type thing, even though they, they, A, they're not really dangerous and B, they're like so far removed that your life's not in danger. Um, but we now know that um, this is going to affect um, 
your, your thinking processes. It's called uh, neuroplasticity. Now, a lot of people have heard the term neuroplasticity with meditation, that you actually groom your, your neural pathways for relaxation, but you can also groom them for stress. And we see that with people who use their, their digital devices, I'm going to say ad nauseum, uh, just way too much more than they should. But the problem with sleep or lack thereof, we now know, is that um, there are a lot of people who, um, because they're so keyed up or so riled up with, with the screen devices, um, and because they don't give their, um, their pineal gland a chance to start making melatonin at the right hours that you need for sleep, they can't get a good night's sleep. And so um, basically they're wired, they've wired their brains for stress to a point where they just can't get a good night's sleep and they don't have the brain chemistry to, you know, to fall asleep when they want to and such. So I don't want to blame society because I think we live in a pretty cool place here, but um, what we need is healthy boundaries. And I, I would be doing a gross injustice to this conversation if I didn't introduce healthy boundaries. Now, I think everyone who's ever heard me speak has said, oh yeah, here it goes on his soapbox with healthy boundaries. But Healthy boundaries are appropriate behaviors. And if we don't have these, it's like we're an amoeba. You know, it's, it's like we got, you know, no, no, um, no form, nothing, and just life is chaos. And I think that's what I typically say is that, you know, without healthy boundaries, our life's going to become chaos or one of my friends calls it a train wreck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so healthy boundaries, you know, we first learned of healthy boundaries through our parents. They would say like, you know, don't do this or do this. Or, you know, I used to hear the one, don't no phone calls over nine o'clock. And every kid is pushing for freedom. Every parent's trying to rein it in. And so you have this tension going on between the generations there. But there's a reason for this, because if you had total freedom without responsibility, it'd be chaos. And if you've got total responsibility without freedom, you feel like you're in in prison. So there has to be a balance there. And so at some point when we turn 18, um, we don't have parents telling us what to do anymore. You know, we're now adults, we can do it ourselves, but we've got to make our own set of boundaries and healthy boundaries can be used for anything, whether it's with eating habits or uh, sleep habits or technology habits, friends, financial habits, things like that. But we need to take time to pull the reins in because when we don't, we have this unbridled um, sensory bombardment that basically throws us out of whack. And ultimately that's going to cause more problems with the physical body and cortisol and the immune system. And you see where this is going, the dominoes fall and they keep on going. Right. One of the, I'm reminded of one of the activities I do with my students and I have them draw a um, pie chart with their most pressing values, the things that mean the absolute most to them. And it's always, you know, something like family and education and safety, whatever it is. And then I have them draw a pie chart chart of their 24 hours in the day. And what is what chunk is taken out uh, from all of their activities, whether it be screen time, um, video games, schoolwork, whatever, and then have them kind of balance this idea of what they said their values are, and then is their day-to-day living reflected in their in their values. And I, I feel like that's a really powerful way to kind of check in and maybe figure out the places that maybe boundaries need to be drawn. I thought this quote was really nice, and this was from um, the former Good Morning America host, Joan London, and she said, quote, Dr. Seward's words have touched my life profoundly 
and helped me to find grace and dignity. Um, the patience and compassion needed to navigate my ever-changing course. They have helped me understand that this is the way I choose to see the world and that I will create the world I see. What did she mean by that? Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. Um, well, first, I got to tell you a story. So, um, so I'm really good friends with my college roommate, you know, I close to, you know, 45 years or so, but he calls me up one day and he says, he goes, Hey Luke, he goes, have you seen the cover of Good Housekeeping Magazine? And I said, no. I said, Tom, I don't normally read Good Housekeeping Magazine. <laughs> what? He goes, go out and buy it. Make sure Joan Lennon's like cover. So um, he said, call me back when you bought it. So I go to the store, call him back. I have the magazine in my, my hands here. And I'm like, okay, what's the deal? And he says, turn to page 116. So I turn to page 116. He goes, two columns over, three inches down. What do you see? And I'm like this. I'm like, oh my God, there's my name. I said, what's it doing there? He goes, she loves you. I said, mm -hmm. who loves me? And he said, Joan London. I said, what's going on? He goes, she said your book saved her life. Well, at the time, this is the book, Stand Like Mountain. And at the time, she, I guess she was going through a hellacious divorce. And there was um, uh, work, uh, ways on a ways on a way to get her to be leaving Good Morning America, too. I guess her husband was a producer or something. And so uh, it turns out that she didn't. She stayed. But then she decided to leave on her own and stuff. Um, but we've become good friends. But um, and I got to tell you, I think the world of her, she's she's just um, she is so sincere. She, she's the real deal. She's not um, anything but but authentic and sincere. But she um, she said, basically, I have got to uh, to reexamine my life and put things and priorities in order and and not give my power away to others who are trying to take it from me. And I think that in that case there, we all can relate to that, that, you know, we give our power away very easily. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the work of Carolyn Mace. She's a medical intuitive and has written some great books. And, and I heard her say one time, she said, the majority of people are just hemorrhaging their energy. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, wow, that's a visual. You know, we think about hemorrhaging blood, but, but uh, there's a wonderful expression in the healthcare industry that says you can't pour from an empty cup. And people like ourselves who are on the front lines of the healthcare industry, nurses especially, um, are giving, giving, giving all the time. And I would say Joan London probably is in that category too. She's constantly giving. Um, but at some point, you know, the, the well is dry and you've got to take time to replenish that resource within you. But now we see, and so the idea is that re resiliency is refilling your cup. But Robin, now we see that a lot of people have cracks in their cup. You know, that goes back to the idea of trauma. And and we got we to gotta fill those cracks before we put the water in. Otherwise, you're going to leak out your energy everywhere. And there's a wonderful um, uh, art form in the Japanese culture. I want to say it's called kintsugi, although I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. But I know you you and all your, um, your listeners have seen this before. It's where you see like a vase and it has a golden streak or two or three streaks in it. Um, and what they do is when they see a, a cracked vase, they don't throw it away. They repair it with gold. And it, the end result, it's even prettier than it was before the crack. And I think we are the same way too. We need to actually take time to fill our cracks uh, caused by trauma or some something that has really caused stress and loss in our lives. And we we fill that crack with, um, with, uh, with the beauty in life that we then bring into our lives. I mean, for me, it's nature. I love going for walks in nature. Um, I love photography too. And uh, I know we're friends on Facebook. You probably see my photos all the time. Oh, they're <laughs> stunning. Absolutely stunning. And I'm always curious 
about how close you actually are to the animals that you take pictures of because you have, have the most bird. amazingly focused stunning pictures of things like owls and lions and all of these animals that I just can't even fathom how how you get them so so powerfully good I have a very good telephoto lens. <laughs> very good. I got. It would I have, have to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Although I got, can I tell you a story? So my wife and I went to Africa last year and we went on this, um, I don't know, like a three week safari. It was great. And we're out in the, the Land Rover Jeep and we're going to try and find a mother leopard and her, her baby. It was about, I think, eight months old. And so, so the leopard comes, the baby leopard comes walking toward the Jeep and I'm in the back and my wife's in the, the chair, the seat in front of me. And I see this, this leopard, you know, when you see cats, like they're getting ready to pounce, they mm. kind of do this thing. And and my wife says, the leopard's going to jump in the Jeep. And the, the, the tour guide says, uh, no, he's not. And Im like, this is going to be the coolest 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe your last time. 30 seconds, huh? <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, uh, and my wife was like, no, it's going to jump. I'm looking down. I'm seeing this like, you know, I'm oh, ready gosh. to prank. And it turns out he did, he did like one more and then got bored and turned away. And it was the funniest thing. But that was a time when my camera lens was, <laughs> it was the wrong lens. I needed like, you know, a wide angle to get oh, that shot. Testing but, uh, your, your wife's fight or flight response, making sure it's, <laughs> oh man, I, that I'm sweating literally just listening to you tell that story. And I, I can't even describe how amazing your photographs are. Um, before we go, I would love to hear, um, I always close with myths that you want to clear up, misconceptions that people have about your field. What would you tell them? Yeah, well, um, <laughs> where do I begin on this? Um, I'll do two. One is I'd like to have everyone who hears this um, understand this great um, premise, and that is that you are not your stress and you are not your trauma. And what I mean by that is that we are so much more than the problems that we've encountered or the, the, the loss that we've had. And I think it's very easy when we have loss or trauma or stress, you know, that we tend to think that that's our whole life and we're going down uh, to hell in a handbasket, but it's not, we are so much more than that. And I think if we can separate ourselves from the problems that we have and realize we're so much more than that, then that gives us perspective. And, you know, one thing they learned in, in um, I think it was like Harvard, did a study to see what happens to your sight when you're stressed. And the more stress you have, you lose your peripheral vision. So all you see is what's in front of you. So we need to actually take off the blinders and realize that with a bigger perspective, um, we are not all our problems. We're so much more than that. But I'll also want to tell you that when, since you asked us, thanks for the chance to say this. Um, back when I first started my career, close to 40 some years ago, um, I knew the importance of the mind, body, spirit um, matrix, I call it. And yet, um, I'll, when I went to get my do my graduate work, I remember talking to my graduate um, advisor, and I, he says, what do you want to study? And I said, I want to look at the um, the integration, balance, and harmony of mind, body, spirit, emotions. And he said, we don't look at the big picture here. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm in the wrong program. Yeah, um, But for the... Yeah, for the first couple of years, I was told my work with um, um, spiritual being and, and stress and spirituality was fairy dust. Um, but I ignored them because I knew the importance of this because every stressor is going to involve relationships, values, or purpose in life. 
And now those same people who use that term fairy dust um, have asked me to give conferences or <laughs> come to their corporations and stuff. And I just thought to everyone listening, hold true to what you know is important with what, what you're doing with your career path, with your purpose in life, because at some point you're going to live long enough to realize that you made the right choice and other people are going to realize that they, they were wrong in, in their judgments. Oh, that's really powerful. So Luke, if people want to learn more about stress, stress management, resiliency, mind, body, spirit, want to see more of your work, where do they go? Well, like everyone else, I have a website. Um, <laughs> uh, mine is brianlukeseward.net. Um, so last name is S-E-A-W-A-R-D. And um, I have a, a page there for things that you can buy books and stuff. Um, Brahman, I got to tell you, my newest, like, I'm, I'm so excited about this. My newest project is a, um, it's not really a CD because they don't make CD anymore. It's like, I guess like it's like a podcast, but it's through audible.com and it's called Naturescapes and it's white noise, nature sounds that I teamed up with this Grammy award-winning musician to do a musical bed under the audio tracks I recorded of either crickets or waterfalls or ocean waves or African frogs, which sound like wind chimes. Mm. And that comes out next, uh, uh, next fall. So I'm pretty excited about that. Oh, that's amazing. And it sounds like that might help with the sleep problem as well, huh? <laughs> well, I, I look forward to that. I, I remember listening to, cause you had a different one before, didn't you? A different soundscape. Yes. I, I could have swore um, that I used that in my yoga class, if I remember correctly, years ago. Um, it's so relaxing, so amazing. Um, I just have nothing but absolute admiration and respect for you. And I am so grateful that you took time out of your day to join us. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for all you do for all of us. And I can't wait to see what's next for you. Hey, thanks, Robin. Well, it's a real pleasure to be on uh, this this program here, and thank you for being a bright light in the planet too. We are we're on the same team, oh. shining shining brightly. Wonderful. Thanks so much. You have a great day, and thank you to all who have joined us on a closer look. Thanks for listening to A Closer Look. Visit us on social media and wherever you go to find your podcasts. Be sure to join us next time as Dr. Robin Pickering and her guests take A Closer Look.